people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings from CPAC. I'm Gary Rathbun. This is an Economy of One. And uh, we was able to snag... Mr. Yaron Brooks from the uh, Ayn Rand Institute and author of the book, Free Market Revolution, which is a terrific book. I got to interview your co-author, Don uh, Watkins, a while back when it first came out. Excellent. Thank you for doing that. And you can see I... uh, I've abused your book. I mean, I got it. I love to see that. Somebody's actually read it, (laughs) highlighted parts of it, and got engaged with it. That's the best type of reader. You know, our our listeners or my listeners are very familiar with uh, Ayn Rand and her works. I I don't know if I qualify as an objectivist or not, but I try. uh, That's good enough. That's fantastic. And the fact that you talk about it and you encourage your listeners to read everybody should read Atlas Shrugged, everybody. Everybody, and, and uh, I give them away on the show. Oh, good. And good. Uh, good. I've even given away some audio copies of it, so uh, I'm Excellent. a true disciple of that. While I have you here, it's it's great that you came to CPAC. Um, while I have you here, I just I, 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 could, I, I could grab you for two hours, but uh, let's just talk about a, a few important points. Um, first, near and dear to my heart is, of course, small business. Free market capitalism. Um, I'm 58. I've been in business since I was 17, and I have watched. I've watched the decline of the free market virtually all of that time. I mean, it, give us your thoughts on that, and it, it, look. If can free- we turn it around at all, or <laughs> well, let's not get pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> well, no, look, the, the free market's been in decline for 100 years in this country uh, since really the progressive era and, and, and the dominance of the progressives of, of our political system, really th- since the administration of uh, Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. And to some extent before that, antitrust laws, which I consider the first real direct attack on the free market, were passed in 1890 by a Republican Congress and a, a Republican president. Right. So a free market's under assault and they've been under assault and, of course, it, it just intensifies. It just grows because what happens? The pattern is you, you bring in taxes, you bring in regulations into an industry. That causes massive uh, you know, misallocation of resources and massive distortions that cause a crisis. You blame the crisis on the free markets, so you double up on all the regulations and the taxes you did before. We saw that in the financial crisis. Right. So things get worse and worse and worse. Then once in a while you get a Ronald Reagan who frees things up a little bit, not much, not too much, right? A little bit so you get a little breathing space and the economy grows again and people feel good. And then, bam, the Democrats and the Republicans pile up on business again and and, and you see the demise. And right now we have, I believe, uh, you know, a president who is dedicated in a sense – 
implicitly to the destruction of free markets in America. He doesn't believe in it. He doesn't like capitalism. He doesn't believe in capitalism. He'd like us to become Europe or worse. And so, yes, it's in decline. I mean, I immigrated to the, to the United States in 1987. And even in that period, right, in, in mm -hmm. less than 30 years, I have seen a dramatic decrease in, in the amount of freedom we have in this country, particularly if you're a businessman, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, uh, you know, trying to, trying to establish a business, trying to build a business, trying to create a life for yourself. And this is true also of, of if you're a young inner city kid. And, and you're trying to raise yourself by your own bootstraps and you're trying to get a job and you're trying to work and you're, you're, you're trying to make your life a better life. Mm -hmm. We've created barrier upon barrier upon barrier for that kid, for that kid who's ambitious, who's poor, who wants to make a good life. And all in the name of what? All in the name of helping the poor. That's right. That's right. And it's, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because it wasn't, what, two, three weeks ago that some kids were going through their neighborhood in New Jersey asking their neighbors if they could shovel their sidewalk with snow. Somebody calls the cops. Cops come out there. You can't do this. You don't have a permit. My good, I, I, Who needs a permit to shovel snow? Shovel snow for your yeah. neighbor. Well, in California, know? to shampoo hair, you need a license. Right. Now, who is, who is the victim in this, right? It's, it's poor people That's right. who are trying to get that first job, learn a skill, develop the habits of being productive. Who knows what they can rise up to be after that? But if you deny people that first job, if you deny them that first opportunity, you are literally killing them. You're institutionalizing them into poverty, institutionalizing them into unhappiness, lack of self-esteem. So these policies, licensing laws, uh, anti-child labor laws, minimum wage, all these policies are unbelievably destructive to the most vulnerable people, the, the people who are, who, are, who are most desperate, the ambitious poor who are most desperate to get themselves out of poverty. Mm -hmm. We're institutionalizing them into it. And it's all products of the left. And the right, unfortunately, won't challenge them. Well, and uh, I was talking to Governor Gary Johnson a little earlier, yep. uh, former governor of New Mexico. And uh, we were talking about that, and of course he ran for president under the libertarian ticket in 2012, probably will in 2016. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, I've often thought that it'd be great to have that third party, but yet, um, I guess if libertarians became a force, uh, they'd really be the second party. Because I don't really see a lot of difference between Republicans and Democrats in their actions today. No, not, not a lot of difference. You can see with the House and Senate right now floundering, they have no idea what to do. They, they, they want to be anti-Obama, but what are they for? You have to be for something. Right. You can't right. just be anti. And, and you see it in a lot of the speeches here. A lot of speeches about how to communicate the message. But what is the message? What are the principles? What are the ideas? What, what, what are we rallying to fight for? Right. We know we hate Obama. Okay, granted. We hate the left. Granted. Okay, but what then? And there are no ideas. So the, really the challenge is how do you form a, a viable third party who then becomes the second party who just like the republicans replaced the Whigs, right right we need a party to replace the republicans and we need it to be to be framed in terms of 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 our our liberties and particularly our economic liberties and we we need to explicitly reject discussion of social issues put because because it's you're not going to win on those and and we don't uh, there's a lot of people on the right who don't agree just put them to the side Let's focus on, on economic liberties. Let's focus on, uh, you know, on getting our freedoms back, our basic freedoms back. And, and if we can do that, I think, I think you can win. I mean, you, 
I'm not going to win because I'm too radical. <laughs> but there's a lot of room between me and the Republicans. A lot of room. <laughs> well, you're a radical for capitalism, though, to quote. I'm a radical uh, for good right. stuff. Everything, right. everything I advocate, I believe, is good stuff. All but right. I'm radical when it comes to it. I don't compromise and I don't mince words. Yeah, well, and that's, <laughs> that's why I read all your stuff and listen to I did an interview everything. and somebody at the end of the interview said, Nobody says what you say. <laughs> well, we won't be off the air on this channel. I, I, I guarantee you on that. But, Excellent. Uh, um, you know, I, I, have we gone, you know, our, our poverty rate uh, just keeps going up exponentially. The regulations are going up exponentially. Have we gone too far? I mean, is it, is oh, it no. possible to recover and get people less dependent and get the entitlements down, that kind of stuff? It, I mean, this is the question. Is it possible to recover if you instituted the right policies? Absolutely, and it wouldn't take long. It, it, this could be a very quick turnaround. How do you get those policies? You have to convince people. That's what's going to take a long time. And, and do we have enough time? I don't know. Uh, that's where it's easy to be pessimistic. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot afford to be pessimistic because the, because the meaning of being pessimistic would be I'm wasting my time right. because I'm a fighter. I'm, I'm there to fight, even if I believe. And at the end of the day, even if I believe we couldn't win, I'm not going down, not fighting. Well, and, you know, that, that's, <laughs> you know, that's no different in our personal lives absolutely. with criminals or anything. I'm going to go down fighting. I'm not going to get killed on my knees. Exactly. And I watch these videos of, and I don't know what I would do, you know, somebody beheading me. But if I know that's happening, I'm not staying on my knees. That's right. Sorry. Um, I'm going to be kicking and spitting. Kicking and, and spitting and else. screaming. They're going to have to <laughs> pump me with drugs to, get, right. to get, there, get me the point of that. So, you know, and that's, that's what we need to do. And can we win? We won't know unless we try. And, and uh, we have to try. And the only way to win is to be principled. It's to advocate for laissez-faire capitalism, not so, for some lukewarm you know, half-baked, which, 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 which was what you see a lot here at CPAC. Mm -hmm. You have to advocate for principle. You have to advocate for what's right. You have to advocate for what your end game really is. It's not just about repealing Obamacare. It's about free market medicine. It's about taking the existing system and privatizing it, getting government out of our lives, getting government out of health care. It's not about just doing away with this regulation or that regulation. It's about systematically dismantling the regulatory state it's not about fixing Medicare. It's about figuring out how to, to do away with it, how to right. phase it out over a generation <laughs> or two so that our grandchildren don't have to face this monstrosity, this immorality that is Medicare. You know, and, and that's, uh, I think I told you before we went on air what an advocate I am of, of Ayn Rand's writings and, and her overall philosophy and, and her belief. And that's, that's my show. This is why I do it. It's an it's economy great. of one. I feel that the individual is where it's at, not the collective. It's always about the individual. All economic policy should be targeted at individuals, not groups. And we have individual rights. There's no such thing as group rights. There's right. no such thing as state rights. There's only individual rights. And the only role of government, the only purpose of government, is to protect individual protect rights. Protect those rights. That, that's, you know, I, and once again, I was talking to Gary Johnson. He said the same thing. Protect the rights. Enforce contract law. Absolutely. Keep bad people out of the country. Other than know? that, there's not much there's government There's not much do. else that, yep. that we need them to do. Um, in the last couple of minutes uh, that I have you, um, give, give me 45 seconds on net neutrality. Well, I mean, here's the Internet, and, and uh, it's functioning fantastically well. 
we're getting a massive quantity of innovation, of great products. Prices are only declining on the web. Uh, and, and the government's stepping in in the name of I don't know what exactly. Something called net neutrality, which is a meaningless concept, to basically take over the Internet under laws that were used to create Ma Bell. Remember Ma Bell? I do. Where you paid those high rates for long-distance phone calls. Nobody would call their mother because it was too expensive. Today you can Skype anywhere in the world for free, and this needs to be regulated. This needs to be controlled. We need government bureaucrats to tell us how to do and what to do it. This is one of the great innovations of freedom, of free markets. And they want to destroy it. It's probably one of the most disastrous things this administration will have done. It's destructive to freedom. It's destructive directly to the quality of life of all Americans. And the only hope we have is that somehow this gets reversed. How about this? Republicans listening, you have the Senate, you have the House. Pass an anti-net neutrality bill that overturns this. Let Obama sign it. Let Obama veto it. Let's make this an issue for the 2016 campaign. I, I agree. I think that free speech, private property is, you know, pri free speech, private property, and the individual. Look, if anything, uh, the, the, the telecommunication industry today is overregulated. Get government out, not increase. Get them out and let true market forces determine the Internet. But what they're doing is they're doubling down, not they're doubling down, they're quadrupling down on regulations on the Internet, which is going to create huge distortions. And, then of course, there will be free speech consequences to this. And when we lose free speech, then I'd be willing to say we don't have a chance. Because what, if, we, if we don't have speech, we don't have reason, we can't argue, what do we have? What do we, we, we have nothing, nothing. Most important issue of our time, free speech. Well, Yaron, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. And uh, uh, I hope that uh, uh, I'm able to grab you again and get you on the show. This a anytime, it's, it's my pleasure. And uh, for your listeners, if they can uh, uh, like me on Facebook, uh, 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 follow me on Twitter. It's Yaron Brook, Y-A-R-O-N-B-R-O-O-K. And Ayn Rand.org, A-Y-N-R-A-N-D.org. Go to the websites. Lots of information there. We'll put all that on our Facebook and our website. And uh, my wife and I are thinking we're going to make it to the, the convention this Oh, that'll be fabulous. So we'll, you should do the show from there. We'll do the that'll show from there. That'll be a lot of fun. We'll, and, and you could have, you could have the, whole, the whole, however many hours you do, all objectivists uh, we, we uh, interviews. That. That'll be so much fun. Yeah. So uh, we'll grab you again. Thank you so much. We'll put all your stuff on the, the website. My Appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll be back at CPAC. Stay with us. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathman. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. We are back. This is an economy one. I'm your host, Gary Rathbun. We're at CPAC, and we've snagged Eric Telford. He's the acting president of the Franklin Center for Government and Public Integrity. Eric, uh, thanks for stopping by. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Franklin Center. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, something that uh, I wasn't real familiar with, and it's, it's relatively new, isn't it? It is, so yeah. Tell us a little uh, bit about the organization. Relative to other organizations, we're, we're a newbie, founded in 2009 to address the crisis, but really also an opportunity in journalism today. We see reporters being laid off in droves from the dying mainstream media, the newspapers that can't afford to um, 
to employ them any longer, the TV stations and, and radio stations that can't afford to do original reporting, uh, the kind of folks who do investigative stories that may take a week to produce one story, but it you know leads to a firing or a resignation or a public policy change, just can't be supported in the for-profit media anymore. Uh, so we were founded as a nonprofit to address that, and we run a website called watchdog.org that has a network of journalists across the country uh, looking into government waste, fraud, and abuse and trying to hold our elected officials accountable. Now, I, I mean, how do, you, how do you go about doing that? I mean, is it deeper investigation into what's being said and what's being reported? Uh, do you do your own stories uh, that digs a little bit deeper into that we also? We do, yeah. We do original reporting. We do a lot of investigative work. Uh, we also cover state capitals. I think if you look at the number of reporters that used to be at any given state capital, there would be dozens from every little local paper across mm -hmm. the state. These days there are some states that don't even have a single reporter covering what's happening at the state capitol. Maybe a few people tune into the live stream. But if you think about the decisions that are made each and every day in local government meetings, whether it be at the city council or the board of education or at your state legislature, there is so much happening that impacts our daily lives. And we read about it after it happens. We can't stop bad things from happening. Our goal is to make sure the public has the information they need before bad decisions are made uh, so that they can speak up and, and make their voice heard. Now, is that mainly on a, a local and state level, or do you do it on a federal level also? Uh, we do a little bit on federal. I think what's just happened at the FCC, for example, yesterday with the government, uh, with the FCC reclassifying the Internet as a public utility, is an issue that for years has been underreported, has recently gotten some coverage just as a decision time. Uh, came down at yesterday's hearing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think most of the reporting, reporting centering around that issue has been very slanted uh, and not left the public well-informed. So we'll occasionally step into more federal issues uh, during things like the midterm elections. We did a lot to expose Tom Steyer and the funding that he was doing in, in uh, electoral races around the, around the country. So a lot of it plays into national politics. But we try to go where the other reporters are or aren't. If there are you know, 20 other outlets covering a press conference, there's no need for us to be there. We're trying to, to do the work that nobody else is doing. Excellent. Terrific work. Eric, I appreciate you coming by, giving us some time. Uh, we're going to keep following you. Thank you and, so much for uh, having me. With your permission, I'll have my producer call you again. We'll get you on when we have a little more time and Please a little less do. hectic and around I'd love us. for any of your listeners to check us out at watchdog.org. Watchdog.org. We'll put that on the website, on the Thank Facebook. Thank you so much. Thank you for having stuff. me today. I uh, appreciate you coming by. It's an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll be right back. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. This is an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. We are back. That's right, back at CPAC. I'm Gary Rathbun. This is an economy of one. Very privileged and honored to have with us Ambassador John Bolton. For uh, August 2005 to December 2006, he served as the U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations. And he's been the uh, was Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. And now he's with the American Enterprise Institute. Ambassador, welcome to An Economy of One. Well, glad to be with you. Thank you very much for having me. I, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy at, at CPAC here and uh, wanted to snag you and just chat with you for a few minutes. I guess, you know, with your background and expertise, I guess the first subject I got to talk to 
uh, got to ask you about is uh, really all the Islamic terrorism going on in in the Middle East and Northern Africa and and what our role is and what it should be in that that uh, area. What do you think? Well, I think there's uh, no doubt that we're facing a, a rise of radical uh, Islamic uh, political and, and terrorist groups all, all around the uh, region, Middle East and North Africa. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a severe problem for us, but also for uh, our friends like Israel and, and some of the mm-hmm. uh, oil-producing monarchies on the, on the Arabian Peninsula. And I, I think the president's unwillingness to face up to the fact that we are confronting an ideology, his unwillingness to recognize uh, what an enormous threat to our national security it is, leads naturally to his unwillingness or inability to do anything about it. And so that's why we have ISIS creating a new state out of what used to be Iraq and Syria, uh, beheading Americans there, beheading 21 Coptic Christians in Libya, and uh, other terrorist groups springing up as state government states around the Middle East, Libya, Yemen, among others, uh, are collapsing. And and all of that tells us this is simply going to get worse unless uh, we take this in hand. Now, you know, here at CPAC, we've we've got uh, essentially candidates for for president that haven't declared their candidacy yet, so they're. They're testing the waters. And, uh, and I've heard conversations everywhere from someone like Dr. Ben Carson saying we have to destroy these people to a Marco Rubio this morning who said, well, we have to provide air support. But the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Lebanese, they all have to really do the, the boots on the ground stuff. What, what, what do you think our role should be in, in dealing with this? Well, I think if we decide that ISIS is a threat to us, uh, and if, as the president himself says, our objective should be to destroy it, we have to do what's necessary, certainly with allies. But I don't think we can uh, do this with uh, blinders on. Uh, some of these countries are simply not capable of doing what needs to be done. And if we say, well, if they can't do it, we're not going to do what's necessary, then in effect we're saying we are uh, giving responsibility for our national security to other countries. And, and if they can't do it, it's okay. We'll just let the threat continue. I think mm-hmm. people are afraid to tell the American people the truth sometimes. I think that's always a mistake. I think we've got to be completely honest that if we believe it's a threat to us, if we are worried about terrorists coming from uh, ISIS-controlled territory, committing uh, acts of terrorism in the United States, then we've got to be prepared to do what's necessary. Otherwise, uh, we're just pretending to act, but not really act. You know, I, I look at this every day. I mean, you see it on the news every day, and you see these people being, you know, bolder and bolder and bolder. And just a few years ago, uh, I had read that ISIS, uh, essentially ISIS had like 3,000 members, and today they've got over 60,000 members. Um, do you think the American people, I mean, how many more YouTube videos is it going to take before the American people refuse to let Congress, refuse to let the president uh, stay on the sidelines? Well, I think that the American people are actually at ahead of their leaders on this issue. I think we could see that in the 2014 election cycle when uh, late summer, early fall, ISIS actually beheaded those uh, two Americans in just acts of utter barbarity. I think in a number of states, the voters uh, uh, said basically, who's defending the country? And 
national security became a big issue in races like uh, Tom Tillis for the Senate in North Carolina, Tom Cotton in Arkansas, even Scott Brown in New Hampshire, who didn't win, came close, came much closer than people expected because of the national security issue. And unfortunately, nothing since the election has changed that. We've had the attacks in Paris, we've had the attacks right. in Copenhagen, uh, we've had the beheadings of the Coptic Christians in Libya. So I really do think uh, that all of this points to uh, the conclusion that national security is going to be a very, very big issue in the 2016 election, uh, and and that uh, and and that the, the candidates, both for the Republican nomination and then whoever gets it in the general election, uh, is going to have to make the case what they're going to do to protect America against this threat. Now, it, you know, from your expertise, Ambassador, I mean, you see this every day. You've seen it from the inside. You're a student of it. You you study it very closely. Um, do we have the the equivalent of a, a Libya, North African threat in this country now? Well, I don't think we know. I don't think it's as serious at this point. Uh, at least I hope it's not. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. I'm not privy to the law enforcement or intelligence information that might tell us more. But if you heard uh, yesterday's testimony by General Clapper, the Clinton administration, sorry, the Obama administration's own director of national intelligence, he said that even though the statistics for 2014 are not final yet, uh, already based on what we know from the first three quarters, it will be the most deadly, the most violent year uh, because of terrorism since statistics have, were first recorded. Uh, and I think that's a demonstration why this problem is getting more serious. And, and I worry, of course, uh, about uh, issues like Iran's uh, nuclear weapons program. And what happens right. if a country like Iran gets nuclear weapons? Iran's been the central banker of international terrorism for 35 years. Then they get nuclear weapons on top of it. What if they give those weapons to a terrorist group? So this threat, uh, and you know, to bring it into the United States, bring it into a Western European city, uh, I think what's, what we don't know uh, should worry us at this point more than, than, uh, than what we do know. Our intelligence <laughs> agencies have, have not been properly resourced, uh, and I think we're paying for that now. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit since since uh, we're talking international. What do you think of uh, Vladimir Putin and, and Russia and, and their conflict or their their uh, poking the eye into Europe, I guess, poking a finger in the eye into Europe, I guess, and Ukraine, Crimea? I mean, all that area is that I know that's different than terrorism, but yet is that equally a, a threat to our security as well? Well, I think it's a threat uh, uh, in terms of uh, the NATO alliance, even though Ukraine's not a member of it. I think what Putin sees is weakness and lack of decisiveness on the part of NATO, which, after all, is led by the United States. Uh, and, and Putin is using military force on the continent of Europe to change international boundaries. That's something we said in 1945 we're not going to accept anymore, and, and yet it's happening again. I'm very worried that Putin, even with economic sanctions imposed on his country, uh, has just uh, sloughed them off, uh, hasn't affected him. I think he has been hurt by the decline in international oil prices. But he's not a consumer society kind of guy. That's not right. what's on his mind. He has political and territorial objectives in Ukraine that he continues to make progress on. And I worry that he would strike somewhere else in the Baltic republics, which are NATO members, uh, and that if we don't respond, uh, if we don't deter him from acting in the first place, which is the most desirable, uh, we could see the NATO alliance in deep trouble. And, you know, other countries watch this. They watch what we do and don't do in the Middle East. They watch what we do and don't do uh, 
uh, in response to uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine, countries like China that themselves are making very, very assertive territorial claims in the South China Sea and the East China Sea to, 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 uh, that could affect uh, trade with uh, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. They see weakness by the United States on the continent of Europe, and they conclude if uh, Putin can get away with it there, maybe we can get away with it here. Right. right. Do you see, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the opinion uh, internationally of America is is uh, been weakened and, and hesitant to take action. Uh, do, do you see us, if we had different leadership here, do you see us gaining that strength back relatively quickly internationally? Well, I put it on two levels. I, I think uh, I think from a psychological point of view, uh, having a president who understood what the responsibilities we hold are to protect our own way of life. Strong American presence internationally helps a lot of other countries, but we're not doing it for them. We're doing it for us. Uh, and as when Reagan replaced Carter, uh, I think you could see a psychological shift almost immediately. But the second issue is, is longer term. There's no denying that. Our military has been severely underfunded under Obama, even with huge budget deficits adding to the national debt. The budgets of all the domestic agencies have gone through the ceiling while the Pentagon has gone into the basement. And that imbalance has got to be corrected. Even as we bring total federal expenditures down uh, to try and get down to a balanced budget or at least reduce the deficit as much as we can, we've got to build military spending back up. And there's just no getting around that reality, which means some of the cuts in domestic programs are, are going to take us all the way back to those barbaric days in 2008 when George <laughs> W. Bush was president. You yeah. know, Obama talks about austerity after he's uh, taken these domestic budgets uh, uh, up at levels that nobody ever foresaw. All, all I think we need to do really is just get them back down to 2000, 2008 levels. And I think we can we can help get this dead weight of the government spending off the uh, back of the economy and yet still uh, fund defense uh, more adequately. Sure. In, in the, the, the minute or so we have uh, left with you, Ambassador, I do want to uh, uh, have you talk a little bit about a foundation uh, that you recently launched called the Foundation for American Security and Freedom. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and your role in it. Well, I'm very excited about it. it it's intended to help provide educational materials and analysis to uh, to the American public to help them understand the importance uh, and significance of foreign and defense policy. I think it's uh, could be quite useful in uh, helping people get ready for the 2016 elections. It's not a political body uh, as such, but it but it does it is going to focus on national security po- policy, foreign and defense issues. Uh, it's a companion organization to the PAC and the Super PAC that I set up to help support House and Senate candidates in the 2014 election cycle, and we raised over $7.5 million between the two of them. Uh, And I think, uh, as I say, I'm very excited this could be helpful to voters as they think about the issues going into 2016. I I see it's a 501c4 uh, organization, the IRS giving any hassle getting approval on that? Not, not yet. Uh, it's, <laughs> look, that's a lot easier than the 501c3s that Lois Lerner was focusing on. But uh, I just think this is, under this administration, the IRS has become more politicized than any other administration, maybe sure. more than Richard Nixon's. We'll, we'll see what these Lois Lerner emails reveal. I can't wait for people to read them. Yeah, that's a very interesting interesting thing to uh, follow. Well, Ambassador, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule here at CPAC to 
to spend a few minutes with us. It's been an honor. It's uh, been the highlight of my day, sir. I really appreciate you uh, coming by. Well, you're very kind to say that, and I'm glad to do it. I hope we can get together again. Thank you very much. We'll we'll, uh, twist your arm and give you another call. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. That's right, back at CPAC. I'm Gary Rathbun. This is An Economy of One. We've been privileged to snag Derek Cohen. He's a policy analyst for the Center for Effective Justice. And uh, uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit of something near and dear to our hearts, and that's civil forfeiture and uh, our civil liberties and Fourth Amendment and that kind of stuff. Uh, Derek, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking a little time with us. Oh, excellent, Gary. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm glad you uh, carved out some time for me. Oh, this has been a fun day for us. It's my first time (laughs) at CPAC, and we've been grabbing uh, some really quality people, yourself included. Now, let's talk about... Let's talk a little bit about uh, civil forfeiture. Hardly a week goes by where I don't put a story on the show about, you know, uh, people getting their house seized, getting their car seized. Uh, Well, the the drug-sniffing dog gave a signal, so we need your car, and we're going to file charges against your car, which can defend itself, and then we're going to sell it and keep the money. Exactly. I think uh, that's one of the uh, one of the best ways to put it. A lot of people don't understand that in, this, in a civil proceeding, you know, especially an in rem civil proceeding in which the uh, guilty party is the is, is you know the inanimate object. Right. You know, it. I, I, everyone goes, oh well, you know, people have constitutional rights, and that is a hundred percent true that they do. However, you know, the Constitution does not uh, say explicitly, and I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have taught criminal uh, procedure for about three years. Uh, I don't believe the Constitution says anything about the rights of a 2004 Chevy Silverado. I don't think the uh, I don't think the um, the Constitution says anything about the rights of one gold crucifix, about uh, the rights of a stack of cash equal to or greater than thirteen hundred dollars. You know, right. these are all the the outlandish case names that we have uh, that we have encountered in this particular arena, and I think that just kind of illustrates just <laughs> just how uh, how far we've come on this. You know, and and we we generally. When we talk about this, we we generally connect civil forfeiture with kind of the militarization of the police force uh, in this country. And once again, hardly a week goes by. We don't have some story of, you know, somebody serving a warrant with a armored car and a SWAT team to the wrong address. And, And that, I mean, even if it was the right address. Why should they be doing that? No, no, and I think I think the big point that you hit on right there is the fact that we are serving, you know, warrant, warrants, search warrants. Now, now, to be fair, uh, militarization and you know forfeiture are two uh, distinct, though very adjacent, uh, right, right. Uh, phenomenon in policing, where one happens to be the expression of power, the other happens to be the fuel, if you will. I mm-hmm. mean, a lot of the uh, militarization. Um, reformers have taken uh, aim at the uh, the 1033 program from the Pentagon. And the big thing to think about that is, well, once, you know, that in and of itself is dubious, but not necessarily, you know, morally reprehensible. To take that material that you get from the Pentagon and then turn it around to use it to enforce 
you know, to, to enforce normal criminal justice practice, that is where the problem lies. Right. Derek Cohen, he's a policy analyst, Center for Effective Justice. You know, it's been interesting as heck to uh, be here at CPAC. Uh, it's my first time, and certainly my first time on Radio Row, and, and uh, the, the job that these guys do are incredible. Incredible. I will not miss one again. I encourage you to go to their website, seek out the information they have. Uh, I'm sure they've got some some podcasts of some of the speakers. Speakers have been great. I mean, they've had everybody from uh, Ben Carson. Uh, we listened to uh, Newt Gingrich this morning, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity uh, was here. Of course, the, the uh, presumed presidential candidates of 2006. We had Scott Walker, which uh, we went to a reception, talked to him a little bit last night. Um, Rick Santorum we talked to this afternoon. Um, who else did we have? We had Jeb Bush. Uh, was here. Um, Ted Cruz uh, was here. Marco Rubio uh, was here. I mean, everybody was was here, and it was terrific. But one thing, one observation that I want to give you, and that's as I looked around, you know, everybody's got to have a name tag. you got to have a name tag around your neck to just about go to the bathroom here. But in looking at all the name tags, tremendous amount of young people. I mean, I saw more student name tags than anywhere else and it's really encouraging because these kids i call them kids they're probably in their 20s but these kids are informed they're not here to get away for a weekend and have fun in in the state capital or the nation's capital they're here to be involved and they're serious they're informed they're articulate uh we grabbed a few of them just chatted with them off air and uh really encouraging to see that the problem is i see them as young people which means that when i look in the mirror i see an older person and uh that's that's not fun at all so uh uh we're, we're gonna get katie to sign me up for some hair plugs or something we'll we'll get uh we'll get some youthful looking going here <laughs> that, that would be terrible wouldn't it oh my goodness but anyway it's been fun here at cpac uh the logistics are just unbelievable and it's went off without a hitch. One of the things I look for is, uh, you know, they give you a syllabus or a schedule for all the meetings. And I, one of the things I notice, does the me meetings begin on time and do they end on time? And my goodness, it's like a German train schedule here. They begin on time, they end on time, and it's just wonderful being part of this. So go to CPAC. We'll have all the information on our website and on Facebook. Uh, website, of course, is an economy of one.com, an economy of one.com. And if you go to Facebook, it's uh, an economy of one. Now, we've put uh, some of the interview clips and uh, some stuff that uh, didn't make it on air uh, on the website and on the Facebook page. So make sure you go there and uh, take a look at, uh, take a listen to uh, some of the stuff that uh, we've put on there. So uh, that's my impression of CPAC. Won't miss it again. I encourage you to uh, look it up and really encourage you to show up next year. And I'm Gary Rathbun. This has been an economy of one. I want you to be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. 
Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 